Will you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis 2. We're going to be looking at several verses in that chapter. So the guys have some Bibles, and they're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention so that you can follow along as we look at Genesis 2. And those of you that have have been with us the last few months... You've been wondering, when are we going to finish Genesis chapter 2? But be careful what you wish for. Today is the last message in Genesis 2, which, as you might imagine, is followed by Genesis 3. And if you know anything about the Bible, you know what's in Genesis 3. And that's the entrance of sin into God's world. So next week, we'll be looking at the beginning of Genesis 3 and the entrance of sin. And we'll see how much we all enjoy that, you'll probably be longing for the days of Genesis chapter 2. Marriage patterns have shifted dramatically just in my lifetime. People are waiting longer to get married, if indeed they marry at all. Just a few years ago, the Pew Research Center published results of a study on marriage trends that was based on the latest U.S. census data. It found that barely half of all adults in the United States that's a record low, are currently married, and the median age at first marriage has never been higher. For brides, 27, and for grooms, 29. In 1960, 72% of all adults ages 18 and older were married. Today, just 51% are. If current trends continue, the share of adults who are currently married will drop to below half within a few years. Other adult living arrangements, including cohabitation, single-person households, and single parenthood, have all grown more prevalent in recent decades. The study said today just 20% of adults aged 18 to 29 are married, just 20%, compared with 59% in 1960. Now, many reasons can be cited for this shift to an older age for marriage if one is to be married at all. Some of those reasons are imposed on young people, just making it more difficult for them to consider marriage and actually get married. In the 1960s and 70s, when folks got married and got married young, a young person could find a job to support a spouse and children fairly easily. And they may well have that job for the entire working life, and they may retire from that job with a good pension. We all know that those days are gone. And so it's harder and sometimes takes longer to afford to be married. But many of the other factors that affect when and whether one marries are things that are not imposed, but rather simply accepted from the culture. There's been a major shift in our culture in the basis of marriage, a shift from commitment to romance. And since romance is fleeting, so is marriage. I read an article recently that purported to give advice regarding how to lose the fear of commitment that so many people have. But the piece uncritically accepted the contemporary premise that the basis of marriage is feeling-oriented love and romance. It said this, Commitment is one of the least understood aspects of romantic loving partnerships because we often lack the emotional awareness to understand why it can be difficult to achieve in a long-term relationship. Commitment is, in fact, about our willingness to really heal our own insecurities, 
We may well have fallen in love and been convinced of our commitment in the early stages of the relationship, but as time progresses, the doubt sets in. We may fear that our commitment to one person will mean that we lose something we feel is vital to our happiness, like freedom, autonomy, or sex. We may feel trapped in a relationship with feelings of claustrophobia and lack of control. There'll be a strong temptation to end the relationship and see if there's somebody who'll make us happier. We set on the, on the road to grass and greener pastures, which if you get on will bring you back to the very place you started for, because that road is a circular one. And then the article goes on to give more psychobabble, suggesting that the remedy is to learn to love, love yourself so you can love and commit to someone else. Well, I would suggest to you, friends, that all of those fears that were listed that I just read are indeed about loving yourself, in fact, loving yourself too much, because you're worried about what this lifetime commitment will do to you. You hear this uncertainty that flows from a romance-based view of marriage in our popular culture. That great theologian, Cher, answers the question, how can I tell if he loves me so? And then her song cites a number of wrong answers according to Dr. Cher. Is it in his eyes? No, you'll be deceived. Is it in his size? No, he'll make believe. Is it in his face? No. Is it his warm embrace? No. Is it the way he acts? No. If you want to know if he loves you so, says Cher, it's in his kiss. Well, God has better advice than, say, Cher. And there's clearly much confusion about what marriage is, what marriage, the basis for marriage is, and the purpose for marriage is. And people have a vague idea that God has something to do with it. So if they do get married, they often want to do that in a church and be married by a minister. But even many who invite God to the wedding don't keep God around long for the marriage. We need clarity on marriage and we need help with our marriages. So in addition to today's message, I'm going to do a series on marriage as I do about every four or five years. In our Discovering God Hour, that's our 11 o'clock hour, and that will begin on September the 27th. So you can mark that, September 27th, 11 o'clock, on Sundays, we'll have a marriage series. Now, there are several of you out there going, look, I wasn't sure I was going to come for today's marriage sermon, let alone a whole series. You're not interested in marriage for whatever reason. Uh, You've been married for a long time and you've given up, (laughs) or... You're not looking to get married. We will have a second class for those who are not interested in the the marriage series. That begins September 27th. And so I suggest, though, that instead of asking Cher and the culture, we ask God. Since marriage was God's idea, and God's word is clear on its purpose, and it's clear on our roles within marriage. And so, as always, each week, let's ask God to help us. Father, we thank you that we have this time together. We thank you that you have worked somehow in our circumstances to show us our need to be here at this appointed hour. Lord, this is a rendezvous that, that you assigned in eternity past, that we would be here at this moment in time to hear your word. And so thank you for that, and thank you for your word, and the opportunity to be changed by it. 
We ask that you do that work within us. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, last week we saw that God's overall purpose for humanity, his overall purpose for everything we do, whether it's our work or it's our family life or those other compartments that I mentioned last week, if you were with us, that God's overall intention for us is worship. And we saw that in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember that I pointed out that the Hebrew words that are translated to work it and to take care of it should be understood this way, to serve and to obey, to serve and to obey. God took the man, he put him in the garden, and he put him in that garden. He made him and put him there for the purpose of serving and obeying God. And I also pointed out last week. That when those two words are used together elsewhere in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, that those are always in a worship context. So God placed the man in the garden to serve and obey him, that is, to worship him, because that's the way it's used in other places in the Bible, those two words. Now, if you weren't here last week, and a number of you were not able to be here last week, we always record our messages, and those are on our website, so I encourage you to take a listen, listen to that. God's purpose then is worship for our work and for our families. And all of those things are means to that end of worship. So marriage is one of the ways that we honor God. And we're going to see in Genesis chapter 2 the very first marriage in human history. And we have an outline inserted in your program as we do each week. If you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to take that out. And let's see four ways in which marriage honors, marriage worships God. Marriage honors God by, first of all, mirroring God's image. Mirroring God's image. Now, you'll remember that in the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, in verses 26 and 27, on day 6 of creation, the Bible tells us that God made humanity different than all of the rest of creation, different than all of the animal creation. And that difference is found in the fact that man alone is created in the image of God. Chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Now chapter 2 is an expansion on day 6. It's all about God's creation on the final day of creation week of humanity. The first man and the first woman. And it tells us this in verse 21 of Genesis 2. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. Now we'll see in just a bit how all of that relates to the image of God and our purpose of mirroring God's image in marriage. But here this passage in these two verses tell us that God protects the man by putting him to sleep as God does this surgery. Now, just as an interesting aside, interesting to me at least, this passage of the Bible inspired Sir James Simpson, who was the pioneer of anesthesia, to use chloroform to put people to sleep for surgery. God puts Adam to sleep as he performs this surgical procedure on him. And the Bible says that God took a rib from Adam. Now, why why a rib? Well, I'll give a, a possible theological reason for that a bit later. But there's a good physical reason. 
ribs grow back quite easily. Now, God didn't need something that would grow back. He could have created a replacement. But he does choose the one bone that has the most regenerative ability. Dr. David Pennington, the first plastic surgeon in the world to successfully reattach a human ear, said this, rib periosteum, periosteum, excuse me, that is the substance around the bone, that rib periosteum has a remarkable ability to regenerate bone, perhaps more so than any other bone, he says. And so God puts the man to, to sleep. He does the surgical procedure. He takes the rib. And then verse 22 says, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, when God brings her to the man, this act of God's is the institution of marriage, and it stamps marriage as divinely given and a divinely approved state. And Adam's response are his first recorded words given in the Bible. Now, Adam presumably spoke when just a few verses earlier, the Bible tells us he had all of the animals paraded before him and he named them. So presumably he spoke, but those words aren't recorded. But these words are worth recording. What Adam says about this being bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. This response is excited and it's animated. In fact, the Hebrew word for this is used three times. Now, you only see it once in your English translation. It's actually used three times. And it literally says, this is now bone of my bones, and this is called woman. For from a man, this was taken. So can you picture Adam standing there, kind of going, this, this, this came out of me. This is beautiful. This is wonderful. This is marvelous. He's ecstatic about what God has presented to him. And he says, this will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. The Hebrew word for man, ish, and the Hebrew word for woman are related, isha. And so she shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of, out of Ish, out of man. And one commentator says this, Adam's acceptance of his new partner and his delight in her are conveyed in three ways in this passage. First, Adam's reaction when he meets Eve is presented as, as poetry. These are poetic words that Adam speaks. The first formal poetry in the book of Genesis. Second, the words he speaks convey his relief that finally his ideal partner has been produced. And third, Adam declared that his partner be known as woman. This name acknowledges that she is part of him. She's part of me. She is my, as we will see in a bit, my counterpart, my complement, my suitable helper. And she, because part of me is equal with me in her nature, able fully to reflect the image of God just as I can, I, Adam, can. That's why chapter 1 and verse 27 makes it a point to say that God created them in his own image. And then verse 27 of chapter 1 says, male and female, he created them. And now God gives Adam this partner. 
this partner who is his equal, both made in the image of God and now both able to carry out this God-given purpose in marriage to mirror God's image. Now, how do we in marriage mirror God's image? I say in your outline two ways. The first is this, in relationship. In relationship. In marriage, in our relationship in marriage, we mirror what God is like because God is a relational God. God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God then made humanity to live in relationship with one another, in particular now for Adam and Eve, in the marriage relationship. And marriage, like all relationships, is to reflect the interaction of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We were made with the capacity to reflect God back to God because we have the capacity to relate as persons, personal relationship. Now, how do God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit relate to each other? The Bible doesn't have a ton to say about that, but what it does say about it deals mostly with God's planning in eternity past, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of what God would do in time present, history. And then the various roles that the Father, Son, and Spirit would play in carrying out the plan of the Godhead. And so you see, for example, this in Titus chapter 1. God promised eternal life before the beginning of time. Now, this is eternity past. This is before the beginning of history. This is before Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created. So before, in the beginning, that passage is saying God promised eternal life. Promised it to who? Since there's nobody around except God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Well, 2 Timothy chapter 1 answers that question. Here's what it says. God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus. Now, notice the phrase before the beginning of time, the exact same phrase found in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. So to whom was this promise of eternal life made before creation? The promise was made by God the Father to none other than Christ Jesus, God the Son. The Bible teaches that God the Father made a promise to God the Son that I'm going to create a people and out of that sea of humanity, there are going to be people who are special gifts to you, God the Son. And in order for them to be this special gift to you, you're going to have a role to play in this. You're going to go and die for their sins. And the Holy Spirit, as we're going to see in a bit, has a role to play in that as well. And God the Son, delighted with the Father's gift, reciprocates that love to the Father by readily accepting this mission. And as Jesus walked the earth, came to the end of his mission on earth, the night before he died, Jesus prayed a marvelous prayer to the Father. The night before Jesus would accomplish his mission to die on the cross for our sins. Here's what the Bible says he prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. 
The Father loves the Son and shows that love for the Son by promising a people of His very own. The Son loves the Father by gladly receiving that gift and agreeing voluntarily to carry out what's necessary to see that accomplished. And then the Holy Spirit plays a role in all of that as well. Here's what Jesus said again on the night before He was crucified. When the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, He, the Holy Spirit, will testify about me. We reflect God's God back to God. We mirror God's image in our relationships with one another. When like God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we receive joy from giving and joy from giving back as the three persons of the Trinity do. And notice they give and they defer to one another knowing fully that they can trust one another in the roles that each of them plays. And God calls us to do that same thing in our relationships. Take joy out of giving and out of, from giving and giving back. Calling us to give and to defer to one another. Knowing that we can trust one another. Now, I have to put a pause in there, don't I? We're going to see next week Genesis chapter 3 and the entrance of sin. And the entrance of sin means I can't always trust you. You can't always trust me. We can't always trust husband and wife, can we? And so God is then calling us to mirror our relationship, to, to mirror his character in our relationship with one another by seeing one another. Now hear this, become more trustworthy in our relationships. Becoming more and more like God in that relationship. And that's why I say secondly in your outline. That marriage honors God. Yes, by mirroring God's image in relationship. We are in relationship in our marriages as God is relational between Father, Son, and Spirit. But also secondly in discipleship. In relationship, but also in discipleship. Now why? Why should the marriage relationship be a discipleship arrangement? Well, it's because God has made us to reflect him back to him. And yet because of sin, none of us perfectly does that. And so God gives us one another in order to help one another become more like Jesus. God gives you relationships, including the marriage relationship, but not confined to only the marriage relationship, all relationship is designed for us to sharpen one another so that we gradually become more like God, reflecting him back to him. That's the end game for God, that he would have a sea of creatures who are mirrors reflecting his character back to himself. You see this in Romans chapter eight. The Bible says God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. The Bible tells us that God has saved us. He has made us a new creation. But notice what it says. He's made us this new creation and tells us to put on the new self. And the new self is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And very directly in the next chapter in your Bible, that's Ephesians 4, the next chapter, Ephesians chapter 5. Instruction is given to husbands that say this. Husbands, love your wives. But love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up for what reason? To make her holy. To make her holy means set apart, different. To make her different than she was yesterday. Make her more like Christ today. 
Husbands and wives in relationship come together for the purpose of discipleship. That is, helping one another become more like Jesus. The woman was made to be the man's helper, his partner. And so marriage is for discipleship. In becoming more like Jesus every day and pursuing our marriages as a means to that end. It means that we have to help one another with our weaknesses. And we have to help one another accentuate our strengths. And there is no place like intimate relationship of marriage for us to see both the weaknesses and the strengths of our partner. And God calls us to help each other with those sinful weaknesses, but also to complement and accentuate those strengths. So I ask you this, those of you who are married. Have you intentionally moved your spouse toward Christ-likeness? Have you intentionally moved your spouse toward Christ-likeness? Now, I word that that way carefully. Because your your, your spouse may be more Christ-like than he or she was when you got married. But my question isn't that. (laughs) My question is, is it because you were God's instrument in intentionally moving them there? I mean, they may be more Christ-like despite you. But you've been called to intentionally and voluntarily and willingly be a partner in them becoming more like Jesus. Have you intentionally moved your spouse toward Christ's likeness? Is he or she more like Jesus because God has blessed your good efforts to bring about spiritual growth? If I were to do a survey of this room, my guess would be this. A very high percentage would say, I never even thought about it. Because that wasn't the reason I got married. I bought into the romance thing. I bought into the love thing. And now you're giving me this God thing. You're telling me this is really all about God and all about us being iron, sharpening iron? Indeed, the Bible says that's the end game of all of God's purpose for humanity. To mirror his image back to him. Now, in doing that, a second thing has to happen in marriage. And I have it in your outline. Marriage honors God by mirroring God's image and mutually aiding one another. Mutually aiding one another. Mutually aiding one another. We were made for worship. Chapter 2 and verse 15. And men and women are partnered to achieve that. Husbands and wives are partnered in marriage in order to achieve that worship of God. Now how so? First of all, husbands are called to lovingly lead. Husbands are called to lovingly lead. So we have different roles to play in this marriage arrangement, this marriage arrangement that's designed to bring worship to God, to mirror Him back to Him, to help each other become more like Christ. And in doing that, husbands have a role to play to lovingly lead. Now it's important that Adam was created first and then Eve. Because it showed the priority of leadership that God gave to the male in this male-female marriage. Now, how do I know that it's important that Adam was made first? Because the New Testament, the second part of your Bible, calls attention to that very thing. After describing the roles of men and women, both in the home and in particular in the church, 1 Timothy chapter 2 says this, For because Adam was formed first, then Eve. 
So the reason in the home and in the church, the man is to take leadership is because God intentionally made the man first and then Eve. And as a result of that responsibility for the man to lovingly lead in his home, the first sin that we will see next week in chapter 3, the first sin will be forever known, and rightly so, as Adam's sin. (laughs) You know, and we men go, you know, we're getting ripped off. She did all the talking. When we get to chapter 3 next week, who's doing all the talking to the serpent? And who's the one who who is leading in this whole thing? It's Eve, and Adam is failing in his leadership responsibility. He was assigned work, and God in his goodness gave her as an aid to him to help him in that work of lovingly leading in his home. Husbands, lovingly lead. But wives, I say in your outline, willingly lead. Submit. Husbands lovingly lead and wives willingly submit. The Bible says this very directly. In a number of passages, one of the most famous is in Ephesians 5. Just before the Bible says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It says this, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So the Bible says this very directly in a number of passages. It couldn't be more direct than it is there in Ephesians 5. But there are a number of indications of this very same thing in Genesis chapter 2. Numerous indications in the Bible of the essential equality of men and women, even though we are to play this, these different roles. And it's very important that ladies you understand and men you understand that the ladies that we are to lovingly lead are equal with us before the eyes of the Lord. They are equal in who they are before the Lord. But we have different roles to play. Now, how, do I, how does that equality show up in Genesis 2? At the end of verse 18, Genesis 2 and verse 18, God says, I will make a helper suitable for the man. Now, the, word, the Hebrew word azer, which is translated helper, is most often used in your Old Testament, not of humanity being a helper. It's most often used of God himself being a helper. Now think about that. This word helper then is not a demeaning term. It can't be a demeaning term because it's a term used of God. And so men, the the woman was not made to be our helper, meaning as many of us sinfully have, have applied it, to be our slave. And to do, be at our beck and call and to do what we selfishly want. No, we are to lovingly lead our wives toward Christ-likeness. And in leading our wives toward Christ-likeness, they willingly submit and aid us, help us in that process. And verse 18 says, I will make a helper and then notice suitable for him. And that word translated suitable means one corresponding to him. That is one like him in substance. One made in his image. I will make, I, God, will make one who will help him in this process of achieving my goals for humanity. The first of which is to mirror my image. But this one who I will make is one equal to him in her essence, in who she is. She, like him, is made in the image of God. Now, remember I said I would get back to the rib thing? 
that I would give a possible theological reason that God used the rib to create the woman? Why the rib? Well, it helps to indicate that the woman is not of inferior substance. That she has true kinship with the man, bone of his bones. One commentator points out that the part of the body that God used from man's side was from man's side, not from his head or from his foot, for she's neither superior to nor inferior to the man. That's why I believe when you come to the New Testament, the second part of your Bible, you have special emphasis upon the woman's need to submit and the man's need to lovingly lead. Now, here's why. We're equal before God. Before God, we are made equally in his image. But we have these different roles to play. But because of the sin that we will see next week, now the man leads, but not lovingly. (laughs) And the woman submits, but grudgingly. And so that's why the Bible then in the New Testament has to emphasize these two roles for for us. In fact, I want to show that to you just uh, very quickly. Take a look at chapter 3. After the entrance of sin into God's world. And God pronounces consequences, judgments upon all of the actors in this drama that we'll see next week. He pronounces a judgment upon the serpent. He pronounces a judgment upon Adam. But he also pronounces a judgment on Eve. And notice this judgment on Eve in verse 16. Chapter 3 and verse 16. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Now notice this last phrase. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now get the context of this. God's meeting out punishments for the entrance of sin. And the punishment to the woman includes your desire will be for your husband. That doesn't sound like a punishment, does it? But if you think of it in terms of sexual desire for your husband, that's not a punishment. But it's not that kind of desire. In fact, that's why the last phrase says, but he will rule over you. Now, we get a clue as to what that means in the next chapter, chapter 4 and verse 7. Chapter 4 and verse 7. And in Genesis chapter 4, you have the first murder committed. Cain murders Abel. And God now comes and confronts Cain about what he has done. Cain, what have you you done? And in verse number 7 of Genesis chapter 4, God says this to Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. It, sin, desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now that line... Sin desires to have you, but you must rule over it, is the exact same Hebrew phrase in chapter 3 and verse 16. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Here's what it's saying. Eve, I've made you to voluntarily, willingly submit to your husband. But your desire is going to be to rule over him. And in response to that, he is going to unlovingly and sinfully Seek to squash you, rule over you. Now that is, by and large, the history of relationships between men and women. The woman not willingly submitting and the man not lovingly leading. But God calls us to be new humanity in Jesus Christ, to be 
regenerated, to be recreated, to be what we were originally created to be. Husbands who lovingly lead and wives who willingly submit. Now, in our marriage series, we will flesh some of that out. Marriage honors God by mirroring God's image, by mutually aiding one another in the roles that God assigns to us. Thirdly, by maintaining unity. Maintaining unity. Maintaining unity. Verse 24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. They become united and they become one flesh. A very, 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 very strong indication of the unity that's to exist between husband and wife before God. And that verse indicates a couple of things about this unity in marriage. The first one is this. Marriage is, as I say in your outline, permanent. Marriage is permanent. You see, you will leave your father and mother and you will be united. And that word united is of a strong, unbreakable bond between the two. It's to be permanent. And that's why Jesus said when he was asked about marriage and whether or not there is permission for divorce. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19. At the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, Jesus, God the Son, says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Friends, if you have been with us for any length of time, you've heard me plead, you've heard me warn about how your marriage can move toward disillusion. And few things have saddened me in my pastorate by watching people ignore those biblical warnings and then to dissolve what God has joined together. And some of you are on that path right now. I urge you in the strongest terms, I plead with you, come to our series on marriage. Commit in your heart right now, I will be- obey Almighty God and I will put His desires even before my own. And this marriage is going to stay together as much as it depends on me. Because marriage is permanent. And secondly, marriage is exclusive. Marriage is exclusive. Now, what do I mean when I say exclusive? The two become one. Okay? Now notice, the two become one. And when the two become one, there ain't a third party. So it's exclusive in terms of who's in this marriage arrangement. The two of us, the husband and the wife, and there is not to be ever a third party that interferes. And that's why adultery is looked at as it is in the Bible. Because adultery is a violation of the one flesh commitment between the man and the woman. Now, in the forgiveness of God, in the forgiveness that Jesus provides, 
then adultery can be healed in a marriage. And I've seen it done, thanks be to God. But there are to be in God's design no other partners, no other male-female partners, sexual partners. Hear this. Even mom and dad aren't to be equal partners in your relationship. Verse 24 says, For this reason a man and a woman will leave. You honor your father and your mother for all the days of their life. But they are not an extra partner in this relationship. And I have seen that happen over and over again. Interference in the marriage relationship. The two become one flesh. And this even informs us as parents as to what our goal is with our children. Just very quickly, when I teach parenting here, some of you have been through that. I begin... By having the end in mind, what is the end that we are to have for our children? Here's the end that I give, that we are to raise our children to be marriageable. Marriageable. Now, it doesn't mean they'll get married. But we are to raise our children so that they are disciples of Jesus. So that as a young man or a young woman, that if God so provides, they are able to be married. They are marriageable. They can enter into a relationship and mutually aid their partner in mirroring God's image. So marriage honors God by mirroring God's image, mutually aiding one another, maintaining unity, and lastly and quickly, multiplying a godly legacy. Multiplying a godly legacy. It is in marriage and through marriage that children are to come. It is not God's will that children come outside of marriage. Now, when children do come outside of marriage, those children are to be loved and nurtured and brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, of course. But God's vehicle through which children are to come is marriage. Marriage is the means by which then they fulfill God's command in chapter 1 to be fruitful and multiply. And now I'm giving you a wife, Adam, with whom to do that. And so we're to multiply not just a legacy within marriage, though. Notice, a godly legacy. You see, friends, children are not to come into your family simply because, you know, I'd like to have another one. Now, if you're going to have another one, I'm glad you'd like to have another one. That's good. But did you know your number one reason, our number one reason for having children? It's for God's purposes to multiply a godly legacy who will do the very things that we have listed on your outline. Mirror God's image. Become marriageable so that they can in turn mutually aid another partner if God has marriage for them to do the same thing. Children are not puppies. And yet when you hear people talk about children, they talk about them like adding a pet. Thanks be to God for blessing us with children and multiple children. Thank God. But friends, make sure that you understand the purpose for which God has blessed you with that. That child. In order for you, yes, to have fulfillment, but most importantly, first of all, that's a secondary issue. First of all, it's to mirror God's image in the life of that person. And marriage is the only way 
that children are to be produced within God's will. And as a result of that, marriage is the only union in which sex is to take place. Now, we're living in Corinth 2,000 years later. A sexually immoral society. And so what I'm saying to you is foreign to many of you, particularly our young people. Because you have grown up in such a permissive society. But God says, I made man for woman and sex is to happen within the marriage bond. For pleasure and for procreation. But within the marriage bond. Now, where does the Bible say this? The book of Proverbs uses metaphorical language to describe the exclusivity of sexual relations to marriage. Here's what it says. Drink water from your own cistern. Running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. Now let me stop there. Okay, that's metaphorical language. What's it talking about? It goes on to say this. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? And in your New Testament, As the great apostle is teaching the sexually immoral city of Corinth about biblical morals and ethics regarding marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, I'm single and it's good if you remain single. But marriage is a holy estate as well and it's good if God has marriage for you. Either one of them, you can serve God and worship God. But he says this, if you cannot control yourself, then marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion, sexual passion. You see what Paul's saying there? you got two choices. You get married or you remain single. And if you remain single, you remain celibate. Because marriage is the only expression of sexual intimacy. Now, I'm almost done. But remember I started by saying our culture doesn't know anything about the purpose of and intent that God has for marriage, and we based it on romance and love and feeling. Remember all that? I just want to briefly give you a personal testimony, and we'll be done. Kim is not in here, in this room. She's serving our children in another part of the building. But my wife and I celebrated our 30th anniversary uh, in February of this year. When we were married, we were 21 and 22. We didn't have enough money to get married. Uh, But dad, is dad here? I was going to say, yeah, there's dad. Dad gave me her hand in marriage, despite the fact that I really didn't have a very good job. Kim had a job not making much. I had a job not making much. And together, we didn't make much. So we didn't say, you know, I got to wait 10 years till I got a bank account and all of that. We didn't do that. And we really didn't date all that long. We dated for three months before I proposed to her. Three months. Now, we saw each other virtually every night for those three months. And in those three months, we had heavy, deep discussions about what God was calling us to do. And in three months, I knew that this girl was committed to the same God and the same thing that I'm committed to. 
And you add to that that she's really cute. (laughs) And the deal was sealed. I proposed to her three months after we first dated. And 14 months after our first date, we were married. Now, why do I tell you that this story? Tell you that story. Parents, young people. Listen, you've got to have wisdom, of course. And I commend wisdom to try to line your ducks in a row as best you can. You're going to have to make a living, of course. You're going to have to pay the rent. And if children come, you're going to have to support those children. It's all true. And I had one year of school to go. And over the next four years, I finished that one year of school. And by God's grace, we were able to do that. But hear this. If God has marriage for you, most of us are not going to be able to date someone for three years, five years, and remain pure in that relationship. And Kim and I knew that to be true. And we knew that we were committed to the same things, and God had this good gift of marriage for us, and so we committed to that marriage. And I thank God every day that he led that girl to me. Now, We need to see then more of our young men who are willing to commit themselves to godly young ladies who believe the same thing you do. And if you will lose the romance, fall in love thing, and you will focus on God's purpose for marriage, then you will be able to make commitment because you know the basis upon which that commitment is made. It's made upon the basis of what God has called us to do. And God in His good providence has brought you into my life and we mutually agree that we are going to partner together to see God's purpose achieved in our marriage. Once you know that to be true, then get your ducks in a row and get down the aisle to honor God in marriage. Now finally and lastly, Some of you, God doesn't have marriage for. And if you weren't here last week, I commented on that, so I encourage you to listen to the message from last week. But God has relationship for all of us. Marriage is one form, very important form, of that relationship. So don't think that all of us need to be married. Paul didn't need to be married, wasn't married. And Paul says to remain as I am, single if you can. But if God brings you a young person, a person who's committed to God and God's purposes as you are, then marriage should be in the offing for your consideration. I say in your take-home truth, the purpose of marriage is holiness more than happiness. The purpose of marriage is holiness more than happiness. Now, notice I say more than happiness. Hey, Kim and I are really happy. And I'm really happy that I married Kim. I think she's happy she married me. She tells me she is. So happiness should be a part of marriage, of course. But holiness is first and foremost. And God has called us to be continually set apart to him. That's what holiness is. And to help each other in the marriage relationship by mirroring his image, by mutually aiding one another, by maintaining the unity that the Godhead has, reflecting that back to him, and then multiplying, if God has it for you, a godly legacy. Let's bow and pray together. Our Father... You are so very good to us. You treat us as your children. 
and allow us to come to you and view you and experience relationship with you as our Father. Thank you, Father, that I am your son. Thank you, Father, that there are sons and daughters scattered throughout this room. And thank you, as a good father, you give us good gifts. Thank you for the good gift of the instruction of your word. Thank you for the good gift of partnership in marriage. And Lord, for those of us that you have given a spouse, help us, Lord, all to pause and regularly thank you for your good gift. Father, you know that because of sin, all of our relationships are now marred. The relationship of marriage is now marred as well. But Lord, you have called us to our marriages and you have called us to unity in our marriages. So Lord, we ask you to continue to grow us into the image of Jesus so that our sinful weaknesses are subdued and our strengths are accentuated and that we mutually aid each other in that discipleship process. Help us to see marriage that way. Oh Lord, help us to define your institution the way you do in your word, not the way the culture does. Help us to understand that it is only a recent development that romance and feeling are the basis for marriage rather than commitment to one another and to the God who gave us one another. And then having realized that, help us to see people recommit and newly commit in marriage to one another. And then, Lord, within the household of God, We have all of us in different circumstances, widows and widowers, those who have experienced the pain of divorce, those who have never been married. Lord, thank you for the big house, the big tent that is the family of God. And may that relationship between the one another that are part of your family, may we mutually aid one another and help each other mirror God's image and to maintain unity within your body. All of the things that are to be done in microcosm in our families, may we see writ large in the church. And through all of this, Lord, may you receive honor, glory, yea, worship. For that is the purpose for which we were made, and the purpose for which we marry and relate to one another. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.